Well, Confirmation Sunday fell on this series, uh, Prisoners of Hope, that we've been doing over the last few weeks, looking at the hope that we have in Christ. If you were with us prior to Easter, we talked about lament, the biblical understanding of crying out to God with the expectation that God hears us, where we deal with the reality that things are out of whack, and we cry out to God, and we say, we don't like what we see, Lord, where are you, where are you? We looked at the Psalms and Jeremiah, the prophets, crying out to God. And now after Easter, we're looking at what does it mean to have hope that God will actually answer, that God will actually answer. And and you heard the text that Andy just read for us, talking about the hope that we have that we should hold to unswervingly. I always love that word because I don't think uh, other than this passage, which is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Hebrews 10, I don't know that we use that word all that often, unswervingly. And so the title of today's sermon is, Don't Swerve. Don't swerve. And so I'm mostly going to be uh, kind of addressing our confirmands this morning, but all of you have the privilege of uh, getting to listen as well, um, because you're here, and I guess you don't have much choice now that you're here. But I want to address these guys, talk about the hope that we have in Christ with the idea of not swerving. Don't swerve. Don't swerve. I want to unpack this a little bit. The authors of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews here in Hebrews 10, he gives us this series of let us do this, let us do this, let us do this, in light of the work Christ has done. In light of the work Christ has done. He says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and then he goes into this let us Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, what is this person talking about? What is the author of Hebrews talking about here with entering this holy place? Really quick background, and then we're going to get into these let us statements. The background here is this idea that in the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And this was believed where the very presence of God was in this place, God's presence was there. And only the high priest was allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for for all the people's sins. So this is a really big deal. And there's a giant curtain separating the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. And we learn on the day Jesus died that this curtain was torn. Curtain was torn. The gospel authors want us to know that the separation, Jesus' death, ends the separation that existed between God and people. The separation is over. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, we now have confidence because of faith in Jesus, because of what Jesus did, we can walk right in there and be in the presence of God. And this is a really, really big stinking deal. I know you're not supposed to say stinking in church. I got in trouble for saying that once um, in a membership interview when I was a little bit older than most of you. Membership interview where I had to become a member so I could go to seminary. I'd never become a member of my home church. And I told them that I had read the whole stinking Bible one time. And they were like, I don't, if you're going to seminary to be a pastor, I don't think you should call the Bible stinking. And I was like, oh, I didn't, oh, these things. Anyway, really big stinking deal going on here. Big, hairy deal. Okay? We were once separate from God. We couldn't be in his presence or we would die. And the priest would go in once a year 
so that people could be in relationship with God. And now the author of Hebrews and the biblical authors are saying what Jesus did on the cross now through his body, which it says here this, this interesting metaphor, right? That his body is the curtain that allows us to go in and be in the presence of God. So with that in mind, with this huge monumental shift that we're allowed to now be in the presence of God, the author of Hebrews says, so then, therefore, do these things. Let us, the first one, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts, with full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God. That because Jesus has done this, has, has made it so that we can now be in relationship with God. We, we talked about this word, this word in confirmation, atonement. Atonement. We talked about it being the at-one-ment, where God and people are brought back together. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, we're brought back together. And he says, because of that, let us draw near to God. We no longer have to be like, God is scary and might smite us at any moment. We can draw near to God. That's the first one. Draw near to God. And then the second one says, don't swerve. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us cling to hope, the hope we have in Christ, his ability to redeem the world, yes, even to redeem us. That's what we've been talking about over these last few weeks, being shackled to the hope we have in Christ, because Christ's promises, God's promises will not fail. He won't let us down. He won't give us up. He's not going to bail on his promises. And last week we talked about how God was, was so radically interested in showing us how he loved us. That when he saw humanity, when he saw us, and he saw what a mess we had made of the world, his decision was to send his son to rescue us, not to send further judgment on us. We looked at that last week. That when God wanted to demonstrate his love for humanity, Paul says he sent his son while we were still sinners. And so God continues to show people that the promises he made, and we talked about this in confirmation. Somebody brought this up the other night, we were, that somebody remembered this. We had a little mini retreat here Friday night and a rehearsal for this. And I asked about way back when we talked about Abraham, what were the promises made to Abraham? Abraham was promised land descendants, and he was blessed to be a blessing. God said, Abraham, I will bless you so you can bless the whole world. So the whole world will be blessed through you. And God, over and over again, as people started messing things up, would send someone to rescue, would send prophets. He, he created the sacrificial system, and finally, he sends his son because God, God is faithful. To his promises. God is faithful. In Galatians 5, as he's talking about uh, this idea of not swerving, the Apostle Paul says this. I really want to hone in on this don't swerve concept when it comes to clinging to faith. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? You were running a good race. He says to the people of Galatia, to this early church community, I came, I taught you everything, you knew the truth, you embraced faith in Christ, and then people came and started offering some lies. They started saying, oh yeah, yeah, that Paul's guy's message, it's good, but you got to do more. 
There's other things you need to do to really believe and really be saved and really be in. And they, they started convincing some of these people in the early church that what they believed, what they were doing, wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And so Paul writes to them because he's aching in his heart, saying, who cut in on you? You were doing so good. You were running after Jesus. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Who cut in on you? I think I've told this story before to these guys, but I'll, I'll tell it to you all and they can listen again. Lucky them. The truth is, I was once a young person. I looked something like that. I was once a young person, I was once a young, impressionable kid who wanted so badly for people to like me, accept me. I also was kind of a Jesus freak in seventh grade. I was this like straight-laced church boy rocking a WWJD bracelet, you remember those? Oh yeah, I had multiple of those on the same arm, you know, just to show how committed I was to following Jesus. I was that kid at school that I'd go to camp in the summer and I'd get those, those shirts. I, if you're from a certain generation, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to poke fun at these, but those shirts that have like super bloody hands of Jesus on them and say some radical thing like, you know, like believe in Jesus or go to hell type thing. I was rocking those shirts at public school like, yeah, that's right. That's, I'm all in. I was a Jesus freak in seventh grade, and I loved every minute of it. DC Talk, so you don't even know about this. Do you know about it? About DC Talk, the Jesus freak song? You do. Your parents raised you right. So, <laughs> that was me in seventh grade. I was all in. I was the church kid. I was at church every Wednesday night for youth group and confirmation, every Sunday, going to camp, doing the whole thing. Mom, I would make mom drive me to and from baseball games so I could be at camp. It was like a two-hour drive. She's making four-hour round trip because I wanted to be at camp. I was a Jesus freak. But in eighth grade, I became a panther. See, I became a panther, and I got to tell you, being a panther was a really big deal in Omaha, Nebraska. Really big deal, okay? I, uh, what was interesting is in seventh grade, I was kind of, I was always real athletic, but I was kind of chubby up until eighth grade. I grew. And so in football, I was always like the fullback. I could never get the ball. I could never carry the ball. But I was always the guy that was just fast enough to run up in there like an idiot and blow up a linebacker so the guy behind me could get all the glory. Okay, that was me. That was my job. Not quite fast enough to be the premier back, but I was the fullback. But in eighth grade, I grew, and I leaned out, and I became a quarterback for the Panthers. Oh, yes, I had arrived, friends. I had arrived in the world of eighth grade football in Omaha, Nebraska. And this was a big deal because there was even some ninth graders on the team, and I thought they were really, really cool. They had like girlfriends who were actually cheerleaders. We had a real for real cheerleading squad associated with the Panthers that did like competitions and they were the same age as us. So this was the first time I played football that it wasn't like my little sister and all the sisters were the cheerleaders. It was like other girls that you might be interested in and you're like, whoa, that's, that's like our cheerleaders. It was already the making of like the Friday Night Lights culture in eighth grade and I was so sucked into it. So absorbed into it. And that kind of Jesus freak that I was started getting chipped away. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. This one time, the ninth grade quarterback who started ahead of me and it always irked me. But anyway, 
there was a practice where, you know, quarterback, you have to, you carry the ball. You touch the ball in every single play. And I had fumbled a couple snaps and I threw a couple bad passes. I'll never forget this. And I was prone to saying things like, shoot, darn it, dang. And he says to me, why don't you just say what you really want to say? And I thought about that for a minute. What? Oh, to be like these guys, I need to talk like them, to really be accepted. And I know that this is such a stereotype of like young kids with their music and their cussing, and their, but it was, it was peer pressure at its finest. Ninth grade quarterback saying, why don't you just say what you want to say? And I was convinced he was right. I swerved. I swerved. I needed to, to listen to the music they were listening to. I needed to talk like they talked. I needed to have that girlfriend that was a cheerleader. I needed all of that so badly, and I swerved. Now, I knew I was swerving because I got found out. I got caught. I got caught, and the person who caught me, the person who called me out, I'll never forget that moment either. I was actually at a confirmation retreat. In, in January of every year, the kids in Nebraska that uh, were from Covenant Churches all doing confirmation, we used to go to Covenant Cedars Bible Camp where we'd have a little weekend retreat. And that particular year, you know, I was pretty cool that year. I knew I was pretty cool, so I wasn't really like into this confirmation thing. But I was there, and me and my buddies, we were hanging out, and we were doing what you do when the, the ground is frozen and you're at Covenant Cedars. You throw cow pies. Because they're frozen. Don't throw non-frozen cow pies. That's a freebie this morning. Just write that one down. Don't throw non-frozen cow pies. If they're frozen, if they're frozen, you're good, okay? If they're frozen, you're good. So we're out there and we're like, what's the best way to throw a cow pie? You know, like frisbee toss, discus, you throw a baseball toss, and we're doing all of it. And I slipped, and I slipped, and I started using the language that I had now come accustomed to using. And my friend Matt, now Matt was a friend from church. He's one of those church friends that he had been my friend since we were little, little kids. Matt's dad coached a high school basketball at one of the inner city schools, went to every game with Matt, sat on the bench with him. We'd have sleepovers so that I could go to the games. He'd sleep over at my house to go to Nebraska football games. Matt and I were tight, and we grew up in church together. And I started talking to it like this, and Matt says to me, why are you talking like that? That's not you. I'll never forget it. Little eighth graders. My little redhead friend Matt saying, what are you doing? That's not you. See, I got caught. I had swerved. I thought I was cool. I thought I had been accepted. I thought I'd finally made it. And I got called out by a friend who cared about me, who said, that's not you. I had let people cut in on my race. I was running this race focused on Jesus, and I let people cut in on me. And take me a different direction. And I kind of willingly went. Because it seemed like a good idea. I meandered. I went off course. I was running extra laps and didn't even know it. Until a friend said, that's not you. He had to remind me of who I was. Or at least who I said I was. A follower of Jesus. Somebody trying to live my life for Christ. That's not you. And you know the thing about it is, it's possible now, today, that as you hear me tell that story, you're like, Man, I would, nobody can say that to me. I would never let somebody say that to me. But you know what? I wasn't mad at him. He was right. 
he was right. I wasn't defensive. I didn't say, leave me alone. Don't tell me about that. This is just who I am. You can't judge me. You don't know me. No, he knew me. And he was right. He was right. I wonder for for you all, I wonder for all of you, but thinking about you all as young people today, do you have people in your life, do you have a Matt who would say to you, that's not you? Do you have a friend that you would trust? You You wouldn't say like, man, leave me alone. This is just me. That you would actually go, man, he's, he's right. She's right. This isn't me. A friend that you would let gently bring you back on the road if you've gone off track. Or maybe not so gently bring you back on the road if you've gone way off track. Do you have a friend like that who could say to you, that's not you? And you would listen. A friend who would say, you were running a good race Why did you let these distractions cut in on you? Why did you let these things take you off course and start to swerve? We need each other in the life of faith. We need each other in the life of faith. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us unswervingly to the hope we profess. And maybe that's why the next let us, the next let us is, uh, the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. See, on that, that cow pie tossing day, my friend Matt was spurring me on by calling me out. He was spurring me on saying, get back on the path, Chad. This isn't you. Do you have people like that in your life who will spur you on? Do you have people in your life who will offer positive, constructive criticism? Do you have people that you would actually listen to if they offer that? You know, increasingly, uh, I, you, m- many of you know that I've been in the world of athletics my, like, my entire life. My entire life has been involved in athletics. In the last 10 plus years, maybe even as many as 15, it's been through coaching. And I've seen such a change in attitudes that really tears at my heart. Attitudes when it comes to receiving coaching. Even amongst the seven and eight-year-olds I coach, I see a change in attitudes of kids who are coachable and aren't coachable. Of people who don't want to receive any spurring on. In fact, any spurring on, hey, I see this in you. Can we try harder? Can we fix this? Is seen as such, such negative criticism that they don't want it. They don't need it. Maybe mom and dad are telling them they're just fine and they're the greatest player on the team. I think that's probably out there. It's probably happening somewhere. But, but we're so prone to hearing spurring on now as a negative thing that I wonder if we're willing to listen. I wonder if we're willing to listen. I wonder if we're even willing to offer it. If we've, been ex- if we've experienced this where you try to offer somebody some wisdom and they reject it or they get defensive and they say, I don't need that. I don't want that. You don't know me. Don't judge me. But, but Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess And let us spur one another on. Let's help each other in the faith. Let's help each other. And finally, the author of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
Again, an interesting thing that's happened uh, just in my lifetime, it's probably happened in other generations too, but increasingly people are kind of in this category of spiritual but not religious, which often means like, I'm good, I've got my own thing, thank you very much, I don't need you, your church, your institutions, I'm good. And there's a certain degree where I understand like some, some criticism of where church has gone or where institutional faith has gone, but let's not, to use the the old saying, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need each other, and if we're not coming to this place to grow together, to be mutually encouraged, to spur one another on, where will we get that? Where, Where will we go to have those rough edges worn off? If it's just me out there by myself listening to myself. So don't give up meeting together. It's fascinating to me that at the beginning, already, at the beginning, very early on in the history of the church, an author has to say to church people, don't give up meeting together. That already early on in the history of the church, people were like, I'm good. I got saved, I'm good, and I don't need this thing anymore. I can just do my thing on my own. But consistently, The Bible talks about the importance of the family of faith, the community of faith. To spur one another on, to encourage one another, to say that's not you when we're going off track. To come and learn about what it means to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. We need each other. We need one another. We're going to gather around this table later. Where we remember what Jesus has done for us and and giving his life that we might have eternal life. This table itself says that we need each other, that we're gathered together as the family of faith. It's not an individual act. It's not a, this is just me and Jesus act. It's a communal thing. We gather together as the family of faith across the world, across time, across national borders and languages to say we do this together because our identity is is in Christ. So don't swerve. Don't swerve. Students, friends, don't swerve. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Don't let people cut in on your race. Don't let things distract you from your race. Don't let ideas, as interesting as they may seem, ideas and other beliefs and things that could easily pull you, don't let them cut in on your race. Don't swerve. And let us spur one another on. One of you could be Matt to a friend, saying, that's not you, friend. That's not you. One of you could be that friend who who looks at a brother or sister in Christ and says, I know who you are. That's not you. In a loving way. In a way that gently puts them back on the track. And finally, let's not give up meeting together. Let's not give up meeting together. It's going to be increasingly harder as you get older, as you go off to college or career, whatever you may pursue after high school, it gets increasingly harder to commit to gathering week after week. It gets increasingly harder, but making that commitment to say, I'm not going to give up meeting together because it's enriched my life. 
Could you make that commitment in light of what Christ has done in allowing us to draw near to God? Don't swerve. Let's pray. God, thank you for your message that inspires hope. Reminds us, God, that we get to come to you in full confidence that you know us and you love us. God, you know us. And maybe for some of us that's scary to think God knows me fully. Whoa. God, you know us and yet you love us. You know us fully and yet in that moment where you see everything we are, everything we're about, everything we've done, even in that moment, Lord, you decided to send your Son. You decided to save us, to rescue us from our very selves. God, help us as we consider that truth to stay on the path of following after you, running after you. God, if we're swerving, if we're meandering, call us back. God, call us back through a friend, a loved one, a family member, classmate, teammate, coworker who knows us and can say, that's not you, come back. Lord, if we know somebody in that state, give us the confidence, the confidence, Lord, the compassion to lovingly say, come back, friend, that's not you. God, help us to hear your voice as we gather together as your people. Help us, Lord, to know that when we gather together and we don't give up meeting together, that we get to be here in your presence and hear from you. So help us this morning as we continue to worship, Lord, to know that you are here without a doubt. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.